Let's do this, baby. Oh, boy. Let's let's go. Hello, and welcome to the How to Win the Lottery. <laughs> You've never introed one before. No, you do it. You intro it. Hello, and welcome to the How to Win the Lottery, Season 2, Episode 7, Guile's Goat Boy. Oh, there's a full title. Do you know the full title? Uh, yeah, um... Uh, something about the new syllabus. Giles Goatboy, or the revised new syllabus of George Giles, our grand tutor, by what? John Barth. Right, which is um, New Testament, right? Hell yeah. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm uh, Bobby Fisher. Bob, we haven't done this in like a month. It it's took been us a while. A, it took us a very long time to read Giles Goatboy. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's we- March now. <laughs> As we as we're recording this, the most ep- the most recent episode that just hit the feed was the Virgins, in which we did our New Year's resolutions, which I don't remember. Because I did. What was our New Year's resolution? My New Year's resolution was to run a mile and then try to shave. Uh, oh right, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. A, a certain amount of time off. Did you run a mile today? Uh, no, I, no. It's like uh, it's only eight in the morning right now. We woke up to to get this out of the way real quick, so I'm going to run that mile later on in the day when I get home. Cool. Well, here we are for. I like telling small lies. <laughs> <laughs> I, like, I like telling lies that nobody would know were lies. Time shifted by six hours. Yeah. But it's actually 2 a.m. We're getting this out really early out of the way. Yeah, that's right. Bob, I... You have categorized this book as your least favorite thing that you have ever read in your entire life. This is my least favorite book of all time. Yeah, that's wild. Explain. So I hate this book, but I don't think it's a condemnation of the book. Mm-hmm. It's just, in every way, my least favorite things combining together in a thing that I'm just like, oh, I don't want to read this. List those least favorite things part. It's difficult to read. The actual prose is difficult to read. Nothing you can do about that. Nothing you can do about that. Which would be fine on its own. Yeah. I do like meta, so the meta thing is fine. But it's also an allegory, and I like a religious thing, but it's also the history parallel to like World War One, World War Two, Cold War, world leaders... Again, I've said on here before, I'm not necessarily smart enough. And and current 60s, uh, this actually predates a, a lot of the 60s ra- campus radicalism. But um, it, it, it in 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 1966, right, which is when this came out. Sure. Um, this book is anticipating uh, some of the more extreme 60s campus radicalism as as it goes on, right? Yeah. Because because the whole the entire book is a. Uh, What's the book y- about? Uses the campus as a metaphor, right? The campus is Earth. I also get the sense that like Earth in this is maybe like twenty five miles wide or well, something. Well, it's a yeah, it's a fantasy world. It's a, a in, in some ways, it's a fantasy novel, yeah. right? Like, it, it, and it, and it's stru- it's structured very similarly to something like Lord of the Rings, while also being structured very like by which I mean there's a fucking lot of walking. Yeah, there's like the middle <laughs> the middle like four hundred pages is just them walking and like every seventy five pages and meeting somebody new and then like for the next seventy five pages recounting everything that they've done already, which is nothing but walk. It's also it's also a parody of um uh, Herman Hesse books. Have you read like Siddhartha? I read Siddhartha in high school, but I don't remember. Narcissus right? and Goldman, right? Which are essentially books that are are these sort of wandering parables about finding uh, religion and and uh, questioning the the reality of our of our world, especially because they those books also sort of skew. I know that this this Giles Goatboy is is a metaphor for the uh, messiah and stuff like that but it has ultimately a very buddhist messaging um when we get like further toward the end um which is reflected in in siddhartha and narcissus and goldman which are dealing with 
especially Narcissus and Goldman deals with like this sort of Wittgensteinian idea about about language and the ways in which we use signs and signifiers to to I mean it's not saying that expressly because it's in 19 that's from the 30s and and that stuff exists in the 30s but it's not like it's not expressly talking about that the way that this book expressly talks about this which we'll get into a, a little bit a little bit later but it is a parody it's a satire of of those works I'm imagining one of the reasons why this book doesn't land for you and one of the reasons why it didn't land entirely for me is because about halfway through I started being like, what the fuck is this satirizing? Yeah. What, what, like, what is the, the target of this satire? Right. I don't really understand what is being made fun of here. I don't really understand what overall political point is being made. I don't I don't really get what, what its purpose is. For, for something that is, like, intellectually lofty and ambitious, the ambition, the aim of the ambition is lost on me. I'm not sure what, what it's getting at. Right. And is that, do you think it's a product of just it being 55 years after he wrote it, or it's too complex for, like... Because we're both smart people. You read way more than I do, and I read more than most people. Like, we should be able to parse a metaphor or the satire or the aim or the target or whatever. I don't know. And it's also the kind of thing where, like, I feel, as I read read on, the farther I got, the more confused I got, because it was building on things that had already established. I'm like, did I miss things? Like, the answer is no. Like, I went online, and I yeah. Googled Giles Go Boy... Cliff's Notes, and I found some like you know modern version of 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 Cliff's Notes, and I signed up for a free trial, and I copied everything from that thing, and I canceled my free trial, so I did not get charged for it. But I read the whole summary, and like I missed like one thing. Like I followed everything. It just was dense. I feel like to be dense, and I feel like that was the biggest issue I had with it is that he he was having a delightful time writing this, <laughs> and it's like why are you saying in a hundred words what you can say in 10 yeah which that is my biggest well also thing i dislike about I, it. I think i think it takes a couple hundred pages to uh really cement ideas of uncertainty in in the reader because it's uncertainty like uncertainty about what every time you get somewhere you you get moving in a certain direction it self-consciously is like Oh no, that's not it. That's not true. And then, like fifty pages after that, they'll he'll go. That thing that we just said is not true. It actually is true. Right. And then that happens over and over again. So, like the, for for literally half the novel, you're going like, okay, so he is the grand tutor. He's not the grand tutor. He is the grand tutor. He's not the grand tutor. He is. He's not. And I'm honestly not even really sure where we end up with that, which is part of the the goal of the book, obviously. Right. Because I think that's the other issue that I have is that the story itself, in that in that way you just defined it, is very straightforward. Do you want to do a plot plot breakdown yeah. for us? So there's this guy, Billy Boxfuss, who has been raised as a goat. But he's just a boy. He's just been raised as yeah, a goat. Yeah, but he's got fucked up goat legs. Right. He was, we find out way, way later, artificially inseminated by a machine mm-hmm. into a woman, Lady Cream Hair. And the machine itself is representative of nuclear armament in some ways. Yeah. Uh, but also sort of functions as, in a real, like, Richard Dawkins, meme kind of way, um, like, nuclear armament not as a weapon, but as, like, a viral idea, right? Westcac is and uh, is more, like, um, 
it infects people's brains. People yeah. people are much more like, like because they're so conscious of the danger of Westcac, because they're conscious of this computer um, that is like has the power to destroy everyone. They live with this awe and fear of it, which is where the Cold War metaphor kind of comes in. Right. Play. And so there is a thing where Westcac can eat you, which in the book means it kills you. But in reality, the metaphor is just like it infects your brain and, you know, changes you for the worse, essentially. Right? Yeah, which is like, um, actually, I think <laughs> like in some ways is really really relevant to the current political situation because Westcac is is this um because there's Westcac and Eastcac and Westcac is basically like America sort yeah. of right and Eastcac is the Soviet Union yeah Westcac is functioning as this large political idea and like I think that it eating your brain is is like symptomatic or or representative of the terminally online right the, the people right now who's like like brains have holes in them because they they just like fall down rabbit holes of well, I think that's the thing. It's like everybody's like, how could it get this bad? Like, this is so crazy. It's like, well, it's always been bad. It's just bad in different ways, right? So, like, it's pressure, but it's also like it also applied back then. It applied in the 80s. It applied in 2000s. It applies now, right? Right, yeah. I mean, there's, you know, for all the for all the stuff that we talk about now where we're like, we can't even agree on what the facts are. It's like when we think back to, like, the Cold War, it's like, well, we were, like, getting fed so much bullshit about, right. about Cuba and about Russia and, like, all of this stuff that just, like, is patently either untrue or unknowable. To, to Western audiences that like I think I think that this is doing a pretty good job of parodying that idea at least. Um, okay, keep going with the plot. So it's basically this the hero's journey yeah, in a certain Joseph, way. Campbell's Joseph Campbell's hero's, hero's journey. journey. I my first note I took like twelve notes and like which is not a lot for a seven hundred and fifty page book or whatever. It's Dune but goats, right? He's just like this is. I feel like you're saying that because you're reading Dune at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was having a difficult time with Dune, and then as soon as I finished Giles, I was like, "Oh, Dune flies!" By. Yeah, that's there's something nice about about uh, really difficult postmodern literature in that like digestives or palate cleansers or whatever you want to call them, like that come afterwards, they taste so fucking good. Right, and also I'm glad I would prefer to have not read this book, but now that we have, I can say that I'm better off in a way for having. But the next book we're doing is what might be my favorite book. I've only read it once, but Enzo, like you have either intentionally or unintentionally scheduled the perfect palate cleanser for this podcast yeah, right. in like a book that you and I both really love. Un- unintentionally, by the way, let's, let's do some, let's do some behind the scenes of what went on during this. Like, like I, when we made the schedule, I was not, fo- I, I like made the schedule of the 15 books and was like, okay, this is like, I think this is a good like movement back and forth between um, short and long, short and long, difficult and easy, thematically different, uh, changing up um, from uh, demographic stuff, et cetera, et cetera. And then we get to Giles Goatboy, and it's um, uh, finals month. It's 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 like the hardest part of the year for me and academically. Also, the month that in the normal year where this is it's pandemic adult, but like my job, my day to day job is the craziest and most stressful it is all year too. So like it's the equivalent of final. So we're both in hell month yeah. reading easily the most difficult book and the second longest book in this module and a book that I just hate the content of. Yeah. Yeah. Good job. Yeah. And then there are all like also we won't get into it, but there are also like all sorts of personal disasters that happened this month yeah. that, that like had me just like like climbing the walls, completely incapable of like doing the brain work of reading. And I told you that literally every day this stressed me out. Like not not severely, <laughs> but like I would lay down in bed and be like, 
fuck, I didn't read any Giles today, which means that, yeah. like, I need to make up 30 pages. Well, can I can I tell you what you should do? Here's, like, my – this is what my time management thing is with very difficult stuff. And then we'll get back to the plot, I promise. If this is a meta podcast about a meta book. It's fine. <laughs> well, we should talk about the meta aspect, but we'll get we'll get into that further. Meta. Um, a Facebook company. Uh, Just kidding, the other way around. Since you consume a significant amount of media, like Correct. television and, and, and films and yes. things like that, Here's what I would advise you to do. This is the easiest way to 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 read like 50 pages a day, 100 pages a day. Um, let's say you watch five TV shows a day, which is a lot of television, yep. but like that's within the realm of of what you might do. Read 10 pages in between shows. Oh, that's what I do. Oh, okay. So so there's also and I don't I think we've we've alluded to it. I don't know if we've explicitly said, but our friend Real, who you and I watch the X Files with, yeah, he and I for the last year and for the next like two and a half years because we just keep extending the project. We're watching in chronological order The Simpsons Seinfeld. Yeah. And we started cutting in King of the Hill, too. And so we do one a day, which is, you know, 20 minutes a day. It's nice. It's breezy. He and I don't watch it together, but we watch it on the same day and we talk about it. But sometimes life gets in the way and I fall behind. And so I think it was the weekend before Christmas, I had like 11 to watch, which is, and again, like three or four hours, which is like a lot of TV. But for me on a Saturday where I'm not doing anything and I don't have much of a social life, not that much. But what I did was I read, I watched one episode, and then I read six pages. And I watched an episode, yeah. and I read six pages. So in a day, I caught up on the 11. I mean, it took me all day or whatever, basically. But I watched the 11 episodes, right. and I read 70 pages. Yeah, and, and then, it, mo- it moves so much more quickly that way. And also, like, reading, sitting down and reading, like, 100-page chunks. Number one, that would take me 100 pages for this book. Probably two and a half, two hours? Longer. Two longer. and a half. I, th- I think 60 pages took me two hours for this book, which is, like, I'm not I'm not the world's fastest reader, but, like... By a certain point, I was just like, I, I can't read this slowly. I can't read every word. And I was yeah. re- I was not skimming. Like, I wasn't doing speed reading, but I was just like, if I don't, if I, I'm just going to, I'm going to work my way through Well, you have to, you have to, I think with difficult books, because I know this is something that you are going to hate to hear and something that you're never going to do, I guarantee this book rewards rereading. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, this like, is the type of book that is meant to be rewritten. And that's why I said, like, I gave it, like, one star on Goodreads. is my least favorite book of all time. But I don't think that is a reflection of the book. I right. think that's a reflection of my approach to the book and having, quote-unquote, having to read it for this. And, you know, we talk maybe last season or earlier this season about Goodreads ratings, right? Like how are these books that you and I both love have like a three and a half out of five or whatever. Almost right? everything is three and a half right. out of five on Goodreads. And there's a certain um, element of like, like this book might be a really high rating because people aren't going to read 750 pages if they hate it. But I gave it one star. I brought it down. Cause I'm just like, I, I had, you know, it's, it's one of those kind of things where it's like, if I was, if I chose to read this, be like, Hey, check this out. I would have read, either 10 pages or 40 pages or 100 pages but like no you said it gets easier which I, it kind of does but I think, like, it, I think it absolutely gets easier but the first page I'm just like oh no <laughs> yeah yeah and yeah, yeah. it doesn't ease up yeah. and there's the one part in the middle where they're like watching the play of yeah. um, where you're like there are less words per page on this I can fly thank god I, I hope this play lasts forever and it lasts like 60 pages yeah. I'm like this is a relief but then also when it's over you're like fuck I thought we had another hundred pages of that. I was like, please let there be another flight. <laughs> There's no other flight. But it's just like, what's annoying about it, and I think that's why he did it, is that in those 60 pages, like the, st- the story of Oedipus, it's the 750-page Guy's Go Boy. It's just condensed into 60 pages and readable, in a way. Not entirely, but like... Well, it's the story of Oedipus. And then, yeah. and then Oedipus is reflected in, in, right. in the book later on, right? Which is another... Yet another thing that it's like, yes. uh, like layering on top of it. it's like, oh, he's Jesus, he's Oedipus, he's uh, uh, all these things. Mm-hmm. 
um, plot. Okay, let's get back to giving the plot. Okay, so Billy Boxfuss is a boy who's a goat with weird goat legs. Artificially inseminated by a machine. Uh, uh, Lady Kramer is artificially inseminated by a machine. And so she shows up when he's still like in his goat, wor- goat world, whatever. And I'm like, oh, that's his mom. Like, it just, it's very clearly laid out, even though they don't explicitly say it. It's just like, why else would this woman? Oh, you understood that immediately? Yeah. Okay, not me. Keep going. That was the that was like the one thing I was just like, oh, I see what they're doing here. Okay, cool. Like I, I did not. That was I mean it was guess, but it was just like, okay, yeah, that makes sense to me. But he tries to fuck her because Oedipus. And she's like, whoa, uh, no. I mean he that, that's like a fairly I would say that's that's maybe the most difficult scene to read in the book mm-hmm. because it's it's like well, this is also a book filled with sexual assault and rape. He doesn't I think this is the only one that is uh written out in detail Probably. rather than like glibly gone over the book is also very glib about sexual assault but we, we can talk it's, about it's that it's the 60s and, and it's written by a dude and yeah and, yeah and also those it's it's mimicking texts that are also very glib about sexual well yeah because i mean because lady cream hair is just like no i'm a virgin like i haven't even had sex with my husband it's just like well how did you have me it's like well i was inseminated by a machine which right okay but like it's even like the way like it wasn't her choice like she was right but it's it's like an important thing to think of that that the, the reason why that scene where he um, sexually assaults Lady Creamhair slash his mother, from his point of view, because he has no concept of human sexuality, right? And 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 like his concept, he's been fucking goats this whole time, yeah, right. He's been he and he has like this. Then the animal kingdom, you want you take what you want. Basically. Well, well, it's like there, it's either a woman is in heat or not, or not a woman, but like a a, a goat is in a, heat. a goat is in heat, and then she's like a willing participant who's like completely indifferent to the act of of sex or or like it's not even a consideration mm-hmm. so like his his being raised on on th- with that kind of ideology leads him to dismissing lady Kramer's consent which is uh again something that is like incredibly currently relevant to to like world conversations that he's like this guy that just like hasn't been correctly taught consent and doesn't know that that uh you know he's got this world around him that is like bombarding him with all these messages that are the completely wrong messages for a deeper conversation about this go check out season one's any man by amber tamplin uh yeah friend of the pod amber tamplin friend of the pod amber tamplin so then billy is just like i want to become a boy i want to choose to become a boy i want to be known as george it's also a pinocchio metaphor not really Sort of a little bit though, and he's like, not only do I want to be a boy, but I want to be a hero. I want to be the grand tutor. I want to be the Messiah. I have been deemed that I am going to become the savior of all humanity. I am the most important. People are going to follow me. They are going to worship me because it has been written. And that's just like that's Dune. Yeah, and then also at which point, um, which by the way is my least favorite of of all like tropes because it's such it's such like a fantasy trope, which is like gets to my. Lots of issues with religion and stuff like that. But any book that is like, there is a prophecy. Right. I'm just like, fuck off. I don't care about the prophecy. And like, I think this book does a good job of undercutting that idea. Right. To prove that he is, and this is where things get a little bit fuzzy, because again, it says this takes like hundreds of pages to explain or to work itself out. But to prove that he is the one, basically, he has to go to the belly of the machine. He has to go to the belly of Westcack. And if you can get in and get out without being eaten... You are the one, basically, right? Yeah, and in between that, like four hundred pages or whatever it is, um, what we have essentially is a tautology, right? The, the, we we have this. Com- Can you define that? Yeah, a tautology is um, it's like a th- a thing that defines itself. It okay. is what it is, right? So his the the the, the like great tautology of Giles Goatboy is him saying like. 
I'm the Grand Tutor. And them saying, like, Grand Tutors don't act like that. And he goes, I'm the Grand Tutor, and I'm acting like that. So, Therefore, Grand Tutors right. act like that. Yeah. Right? And so his, his um, behavior, no, ma- no matter how he behaves, it, it can be um, permitted or dismissed or embraced because um, he's the Grand Tutor. And if he acts a certain way, then it's it's permissible. Um, because he's the person that gets to set the standard for what's permissible and what's not, right? It's your parents saying, uh, um, because I said so. Right. And so he's allowed to ostensibly, in certain points, rape women or do whatever he wants to do because it can't be immoral or unethical or incorrect because he's been chosen. Yeah, which again is, uh, keep in mind this is 1966. He is predicting things like Charles Manson. Yeah. Right? Like directly like um, uh, envisioning this because like this kind of misogyny it, it, like is, um, and, and the sort of great men theory of history is already underway. Um, the Like this idea that uh, special men are allowed to do anything and because he has deemed himself special and because there is like a little bit of evidence that says that he might be and because he's got goat legs instead of human legs like he exists on the on this pedestal which allows him his bad behavior well i think what's the thing you have to keep in mind with hero stories and hero journeys and whatever is that Typically, if we're reading a book or we're watching a movie about someone who might or might not be the one, they're probably the one because if they're not, <laughs> there wouldn't be a story told about them. Yes. So the fact that there is doubt, right? Like, and not just like doubt, like the Oracle telling Neo, "No, you're not the one." Like maybe a future life, who knows, right? Like that—that's not doubt in the way that this book is just Matrix like, bullshit. Hey, man, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you on my side anyway. Um, but it's it's not like this where it's like. Oh no! Like you're you're just an asshole. You're just an idiot kid. You're just a goat. Like it's not you. And like the fact that there's actual subversion is funny, but also at the same time, it's like, why the fuck are we reading a 750 page book about this guy who's not the Messiah? Well, I think I think because when we get to the point at the end, it, it becomes. I, I think there is a good point at the end. I, I think there is a reward to all of this. You want, and you want to talk about that now? Because I mean, we're, we might as well. Because it's we're all over the place anyway. So so for the entire last half of the book you go, we go over this thing over again over and over again this idea that uh pass it or the flunked um passages failure and it's it's like and pass it is basically you know holy and devout and flunked it's like sinful it's in, in a way yeah the dean of flunks is the devil presumably again none of these like line up directly because once you think you know what pass it means then he's just like Oh, you're passing. It's like, wait, does that mean that she dies? What are you talking about? What is what is graduation? What is like, and also yeah, because it's a school metaphor. It's also literally passing and failing. And also, flunk is also like a standing for the word fuck. So like, flunk you and flunk off. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. So it's just like it's again, it's whatever you it's a want. A lot of to moving mean. parts. Yeah. So circles inside of circles inside of circles. But so he's creating this this idea. And the of, way that we're talking about this makes it sound like a book that I should have loved, and it still infuriates <laughs> me. But go on, go on. So so uh, uh, pass it or the flunk, which is um, you know the meek shall inherit the earth. That's pass all fail all. Um, that you you have yeah pass all fail all, which I think we should get that 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 tattooed. <laughs> Do you think we like? What if we got that tattooed? No, we gotta get. Pass and fail on the knuckles. Yeah. Oh, that would be... Imagine me as a teacher walking into a class with pass and fail written on my knuckles. Students would... Uh, All right. Stephanie, John, Giles on the left. Everyone else on the right. You three, left knuckles. <laughs> pass. Everybody else, fail. Get the fuck out. Fuck off. Flunk off. 
What if Logan Roy said flunk off? It'd be better. <laughs> I think it'd be better. Okay. Anyway, go on. So, so you have this idea of passage, passages, failure, um, et cetera, et cetera, over and over again. He's the grand tutor, or he's not the grand tutor. Right. Um, what we come to understand is that it doesn't matter. These words are like arbitrary symbols that whose context changes, mm-hmm. like in every. And this is something that we're actually going to go in really deep on when we talk about end zone. And this is like Don DeLillo's entire thematic. Uh, uh, bibliography is about this issue when we create words like pass and fail or live and die we're creating binaries and those binaries are false binaries right they can't define entire um they can't define events they can't define people they can't define all of like anything really devil is uh you know, because of like, um, we're going to go back to something that we talked about in the very first episode, right? Which is post-structuralism and post-modernism as the aesthetic representation of post-structuralism, right? Post-structuralism takes all of the things that we've accepted culturally up to this point, um, the, the ways in which religion has informed morality, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, and said that it's all a false premise. So everything that comes from it is like, in theory, fucked. Like we don't, we don't flunked. We don't need to uh, obey these laws because these laws are based in something that is like was misleading from the get go because they were uh, uh, rules that were instructed by hierarchical power structures that were necessarily oppressing certain groups of people at the time. And so, like, as we get further and further away from that, it gets a little bit mistier and mistier why we listen to those rules anyway. And so, like, if our binary ideas are founded on these original thoughts, then, and those original thoughts are so out of date, then, like, what does any of this even mean? How does language express this stuff? How can it get us to where we're going? And I think that, like, part of what Giles Gopoy is doing is, it's first of all, it's, it's exploding this idea of the binary, right? It's exploding this idea of like, um, this word means this thing mm-hmm. or this person is this person. Right. Right. And, and, um, in, in doing so, um, like gets us to reconsider all of the things that it's parodying. Right. So, so like, um, it gets us to reconsider the Bible. It gets us to reconsider the cold war, yep. right. Which at 1966 in, in America, you're, it's, it's like this idea that uh, the Soviet union is this like evil force rather than like a bunch of people that just want to fucking eat and, and live their lives right. and, and, and like function as humans. Um, it, it gets us to reconsider, uh, ideas about, um, all sorts of religious and, and socio-political and, and like myths that we've taken for granted. Um, it gets us to reconsider this idea of Christ as Messiah. Uh, it gets us to reconsider um, all, all sorts of things. Its conclusion, which is essentially none of this shit matters, yeah. is actually like quite revolutionary. Well, because I think what, if you think about it just from the religious element, right, where you, you look at Jesus Christ yeah. to millions or billions of people is was the messiah right he's the one yes but you billions of other people are just like he's just guy or whatever or 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 in you know in like islam he's like an an incredibly important prophet right who's who's not the messiah but is still like an essential part of it but is like that's still heresy for christians right and and like like that relationship becomes incredibly complex contextually and so there's something true about the thing that whether or not giles billy whatever george is the one the messiah or not to certain people he is absolutely without a doubt and to other people 
He's just a guy. Or he's an important guy, or he's a, a, pro, a heretic, or whatever. And so... Whether or not, I think that's that there's there's something truth to that whole like the one because like again Matrix for a second like Neo in in the movie is like he's the one and like we don't see the perspective from anybody else in that world right. where he's like oh no that's but like he's like undeniably like he just proves that he is Jesus was just like believe me or not whatever and Giles is like you know they're either gonna believe me or not and like he at the end of this has his like people that he awakens or whatever the verb he is but like. It, we don't get a sense of how widespread that is or if there's any kind of long-lasting repercussions, but, like, there's false prophets all throughout history. And there's yeah. people who, like, like the Charles Manson thing, like, people were like, this guy is, like, the guy, and no matter what he does, I'm going to follow. And then the rest of the world was just like, no, he's just, a, he's an insane sociopath. Yeah, I think I think the implication is that at the very end, end that there is a dedicated but small following of Giles that right. still believes that That also seems like it could grow over time. Yeah. But it also feels like he kind of has his, like, it almost feels small enough to be like, these are his apostles. Like, there's, like, 12 people who, like, really believe in him. Yeah. And yeah. that's it. Yeah. But we're going to go off on a journey here, and it's going to grow and change the world and whatever. Or not, because there's, like, this. there's the postscript, and there's the postscript to the postscript or whatever, which is, like... Ugh. That's also what drove me crazy about the actual physical reading of the book is that the Kindle version ends at page like yeah. seven hundred or whatever, and then there's just like you're at ninety nine percent and page seven fifty of seven or whatever it is, and there's just probably forty pages more, and I'm like, fuck <laughs> you, because I'm sure in the actual like paperback hardcover, like those pages might not be numbered, yeah. but like the Kindle version knows how many pages there are. Well, the Kindle version doesn't start you on page one. I mean, it's yeah, sometimes, yeah. It's yeah, it's, it's confusing. Um, I want to mention all, all that stuff that I said about, about binary and about the, this idea of contextual um, signs and stuff like that is, uh, like, all of that. I was talking with my friend Eric about this book, who'd, who'd read it before. Eric is a PhD candidate at University of Albany. He's a really, really smart guy, smarter than me, certainly, about things like this. But he informed me that a lot of this stuff is covered in uh, Jacques Derrida's paper, um, Structure, Sign, and Play, which is like a... Uh, revolutionary paper in the in the in the community of semiotics okay. right and that was published the same year that this book came out so like barth is like like he's ahead of his time with all of this stuff he's he's like paving a way for future american postmodernists in a way that is like pretty radical so here's a question i have and that maybe maybe i'm oversimplifying things and i don't want to take anything away from john barth but yeah isn't it equally likely that there are a lot of other authors or works of fiction that were equally bold and radical and forward thinking that just were wrong and that this one seems oppressive because it like it got it right? Yeah, for sure. Right? That there are other people who might be like, look at this crazy thing. And it's just like, well, that didn't really pan out. So like nobody thinks about that. But here it's just like, oh, God, like this is right. Like this feels current in a way. Well, well, but also it's not like I don't. Number one, I don't think that that's a coincidence. I think there is like. Like, I don't think he, like, rolled the dice and was right. I think he, like, read the signs in, in, in the culture and... Just like, like Owen Meany. And, and was, like, really... Um, uh, th- this book is actually, like, a uh, would be a fascinating double bill with Owen Meany because of the, the views that it takes on faith. Sure. But also just, like, how Owen... Like, I think it's the same kind of thing where it's, like, if you play it out to a logical end, if you're a smart enough person and you're well-read enough and you're... You understand how the world works. Yeah. You can sort of set up a domino effect where, like, if this happens, then this is going to happen, this is going to happen, we're going to end up at here. And right. when you get it right. So, like, in Owen, it's written after the fact so that Owen is right because, like, we knew how it worked. Here, it's, like, it's it's actually predictive. But it's the same kind of thing where just, like, 
they can see what's going on, a fictional character versus this author, and he just gets it largely yeah, right. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's culturally predictive. I think he could read the room really well. Sure. And, and so was, like, reacting to uh, to things that he saw in the culture and to this these ideas about w- uh, ways in which we— um, you know, the '60s were a time where a lot of a lot of structures were uh, burned to the ground, like a lot of a lot of ideological structures were were uh, taken down, and this is part of that. Although I do think that this is like a stodgy part of that. Like I I, I get the sense reading this book, I don't know anything about John Barth's personal life. I get the sense that John Barth is a uh, a bummer to hang out with. Uh, well, like a fucking nerd who, yeah. like, who, like nobody will fuck too. Like he, he totally feels like a guy that's just like he. He seems like a pervert, kind of to me. And I, this is like libelous. Like John Barth is still alive. To put the thing in context is that like he had written a bunch of things before this, and then sort of out of nowhere, this became like a smash sensation that like. It seems in line with what he was kind of writing. This is just from me reading his wiki, where, like, this was an unexpected semi-phenomenon. Yeah. Which I thought, like, I was sort of blown away when I wikied it, like, 50 pages, and I was like, oh, it was written in the 60s. Because, like, it doesn't feel like it's dated to a time. Like, it sort of felt more modern. Like, a lot of what we read is, like, 80s and 90s, kind of, right? And so I was just assuming, I was like, oh, okay. But it's a guy who sort of last because this sort of unexpectedly again became commercially and critically successful he's still the um he's still writing he's still like innovating have you read other stuff of his yeah uh i haven't read any of his recent stuff but he's still someone who's like he had a short story that was in best non-required reading a couple of years ago okay he uh you know is this is this his thing he's most known for no no no. uh sotweed factor he's really well known for um the biggest thing that he's known for is a short story collection called lost in the fun house okay um which has uh some really really weird stories in it that are have you taught any of his stuff no is it all is it all hyper complex or is he st- yeah 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 so it's probably too much for intro uh i don't know i could probably do it but it's like you know like end of the road is uh short enough to do it end of the road's a book about um suicide he says with a shrug yeah it's you know he's he's a good but like the thing about teaching something like this you know i mostly teach freshmen so like teaching right. teaching something like that to them be like uh, like i would have to go into this postmodernist spiel which doesn't really like play all that well because they're just not a not interested and b don't have the background for it right uh plot wise keep going i i don't know i don't know where to keep going okay so i have a couple of things so so let's talk about characters um you want to talk about anastasia maybe his twin sister Maybe his twin sister. But okay. also maybe, like, his lover? Yeah. Um, but also married to one of his friends. Kind of friends. Who's, like, a, a uh, in some ways, representative of the devil himself. Right. Right? Which is, like, interesting because it's, like, Jesus being friends with the devil. That's Maurice Stoker, which has the last name Stoker, Bram Stoker. Sure. Author of Dracula. I don't know if that's anything get it. That, that means that we're meant to put together. If there's something to get there, I don't necessarily get it. But it's something that I thought about over and no, over No, but just, again. you know, vampire incarnation of the devil, evil, right? So. Yeah. Um, but, like, something about Anastasia, I wrote some notes for this one. That, Is she, like, Mary Magdalene, kind of, like a parallel? Yeah, for yeah. sure. For sure. But, like, something that's interesting about her is, like, when she tells the story of her, quote-unquote, sexual education, which includes, like, her teachers molesting her under the pretense of teaching her, um, Ira, uh, who, uh, how do I, who's Ira even, how do you describe, whatever, (laughs) um, 
Ira spanks her as a punishment for her sexuality while he, like, himself gets off on it. Right. Like, he's, like, mad that she's giving him boners, so he spanks her, which gives him more boners, which is, like, that all feels really accurate, like, an accurate representation of the way that survivors become the load bearers of blame through sexual assault situations, at least partially because academic, religious, and authoritarian morality abdicates its own responsibility. You know, um, I'm only hitting you because I love you. Right. Um... I wouldn't do this if you didn't make me do this, et cetera, et cetera. Like fault lies in this case with the powerless who are uh, given sort of assumptive but false power. Uh, Ira beats her harder because she turns him on and beating her harder turns him on more, which he blames her for. And then she blames herself for that as well. Meanwhile, Goat Boy peppers Anastasia's stories with threats about how he'll kill Ira, right? He's like in this because he's killed before, right? <laughs> so he's he's like, I'll kill him, I'll kill him. You know, again, reflects this idea that a lot of uh, victims of sexual assault have to deal with from people that they love, yeah. which is the idea that these people take their tragic past and make it about, like, his praxis, right? He makes her assault about his own vengeance, which she doesn't ask him for, right? So you'll get all these, like, like the, the act of someone committing vengeance on behalf of someone who was sexually assaulted is oftentimes also traumatic for the person sure who, who's got to relive it all yeah uh and and because it's like yet another act of violence that happens like within their because there's also the, the fucked up sexual politics of like anastasia's like i'm in love with you i want to sleep with you i want to be your bride basically and he's like cool you gotta fuck your husband first and she's like right wait he, hold on what yeah it, it's again, and also this other guy too this is this is a thing that i i it's one of these things in this book that i don't understand and i i don't want to say that it's it's my fault, but it is something that I feel like uh, maybe Barth is dropping the ball on because everything that I just talked about, about Anastasia, when she recalls her story and it sort of reflects this idea, like that is like really sensitive and, and, and a smart view from a dude in the 60s about the way that like sexual uh, assaults, dynamics and power structures mm-hmm. work and, ha- and the psychology of it. And then he takes all of that sensitivity and he totally fucks off and it disappears for the back half of the novel where it's like, again, like you're dealing with binaries. You're you're dealing with the the horror Madonna complex, right? Where it's like whatever. But it also like he takes control of her sexual agency. Well, that's what makes it that's what makes it frustrating is because like he could do the thing and he does do the thing and then just chooses not to. Right, cuz he's he's like like part of his like pass it or the flunked stuff is like is like look, you don't need to feel bad about fucking everybody. That's totally fine. You can do whatever you want. Fuck everyone in the entire campus. Fuck the whole world. In fact, like you're blessed because you're doing those things because like you're seeing people suffering uh with these erections that you've caused and you're relieving them of it. And he's, like, trying to, like, knock down this wall of, like... uh, Slut-shaming? Yeah, slut-shaming and stuff like that. But then at the same time, he's, like, also, do what I tell you to about your... Like, I'm in control of your sexuality. It's not your body to do with what you want. It's, like, you have to do these things. And I'm the grand tutor. I know that you're going to listen to me, so go forth. Yep. Which is totally, absolutely fucked. Right. She does the thing in the end, I guess, right? Or something. She's still on Guile's side at the end. Yeah, well, you get into this weird thing where it's like she has a twin, right? There's Lacey, the twin, who's like the actual one that's like sexually active. And then Anastasia herself is like... A virgin. Like, yeah, or like even frigid, maybe, like, right. which is a word that I guess we like doesn't get used anymore and shouldn't be used. But like, I, and, and that, again, that like sort of loses me because I'm just like, you did all of this work of building this to like then on page... 
520 go like, you know, by the way, all that stuff is di- it's different from what you thought it was. It's not that thing. Right. And I, I know there's something, I'm sure people like that element of it where it's like turning the world on its head and everything you thought you knew is no longer true, but it just feels like a waste of time when you're not into it, where it's like, why did you feed me all that bullshit for 300 pages then? Yeah. I don't know. The other thing um, that we can talk about um, that puzzled me uh, and I had a real tough time getting past was uh, this book's hella racist. Yeah. Right. Like, like it is like really racist, especially like against black people. Every black character in the book, except for um, George Harold's daughter, mm-hmm. um, who is like still hypersexualized, like Croker, um, George Harold himself. George Harold is his brain was eaten by West Cack, Right. So he's like. Um, they provide sexual or other assistance to George, the, to the impotent scientist, and to Peter Green. They sacrifice themselves. They're the one who saved Goat Boy from Westcac at the cost of his own sanity, though not his own sexuality. Yeah, they're essentially all, like, sub-vocal sex monsters. And also, like, they use him, like, Giles literally, like, gets a ride. Like, he just, like, gets carried around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like, yeah, you're a mule carrying And, and we're, like, introduced to Croker via Croker raping Anastasia. Because she, like, also, like... I don't remember this exactly, but, like, they need to cross a river, and she's like, come get me, big boy. Yeah. And then he does it, and then he's still the villain, even though, like, she kind of, like, used her sexuality to lure him to, like, he's so dumb, we can't get him to do what we need to do, so, like, we're gonna, like, appeal to his base instincts or whatever. And they beat him with a stick to get him to do stuff. It's, it's like, I just don't understand what's going on. For, like, a book that, again, it's, like, this frustration, and this is true of... A lot of like white academics, I think, which is like they can be really, sm- and it's probably true of, of me to some, to some degree, which is that like we can be like smart and sensitive in some areas, and and then just in other areas be like complete fucking idiots and like not understand even the most basic things about how, the ways in which we're being offensive. But I think there's a difference, and I'm not trying to defend you here because I know that you are a terrible person. And I don't want to just you're indefensible in certain ways, but I think there's a difference between like accidentally not being in tune or in touch with things and then overtly being like there's three black people and they're all subhuman yeah it's it's like very um because even if even like have you have you read heart of darkness no there's like like heart of joseph conrad is that what apocalypse now is based on yeah but like heart of darkness is like a book about colonialism about the horrors of colonialism in a lot of ways but then like and it's using this like nested character structure to bring you uh, nested narrative structure to bring you away from the uh like you get further and further away from the actual from Joseph Conrad it's like a person telling a story about a person telling a story about a person telling a story but there are all of these parts in it where they're like talking about they're in Cong- the Congo and they're like on the river and they're like the natives stood on their hind legs and it's just like what the fuck are you talking about they're humans right. they only have legs yeah. they don't have hind legs like that's so and it's, it's so he's like really like embracing that kind of Joseph Conrad uh like a fucking anamorphs version of black people, right? right. Yeah, <laughs> which is like, I, and it's it's very hard to look at that and be like, like move past that and be like, oh, I enjoy this book. Also, how it treats women. I mean, basically, okay. So to a certain extent, if you're not a goat, everybody's kind of a negative. So like, there's that element of it, which is like all humans are terrible, but it's also especially like women don't have a lot of things going on, and black people don't have a lot of things going on. And I think. Like, I think. I think. Um. At least, you know, again, the, the, I got lost in many parts of this book, so I, I may I may have missed something. Um, I think he treats Jews pretty well. 
the Moetians. Well, because like there's Max, who's Einstein, sort of, right? Yeah, or at least like there's yeah, Max is a, a uh, yeah, Einstein's uh, in this book. Too. Uh, I mean, he's a uh, you know an Einstein cipher, but also he's like a pacifist. It feels like there's like suffered the Bonifacist uh, Holocaust. The Bonifacists are the Nazis. The Moetians are the Jews. Because it also feels like he sort of invented the the parallel to the atomic bomb sort of mm-hmm. right yeah yeah and also which also means that he kind of invented west cac which also right. kind of mean like and part of this is also trying to there's the two campus riots which are the parallels to the world wars and trying to avoid world war three and he's trying to atone for his sins and like knows what he did and blah 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 and yeah um and and he also is a he's a pacifist no, like notably a pacifist and he murders he doesn't murder uh what's the name herman herman is that the guy's name i think so two hermans herman herman a pizza pizza um but then he didn't he didn't murder him right he's like like that guy how did he die do you remember no he died to motorcycle they like because they steal his motorcycle and um but he's accused and he's imprisoned for it and when he's imprisoned he takes the blame of the murder because he wanted to murder him and so so he takes that upon himself but like something that i that i noted here was Stoker referring to Max and the, and the Moetian says, uh, do what you want to us. We won't bite. Made to be persecuted. Why don't they fight? Um, which is like a common refrain, like a common anti-Semitic refrain about Jews during World War II, which is like, why didn't they fight back against the Nazis? Which is like, well, fuck you. They did. <laughs> like, there were lots of Jewish groups. In the, and like, guess what? Like, most of the people that like... You don't hear the stories of the people that fought back against the Nazis because they're all fucking dead. Right. Like, they're all dead. I, I think that, like, and that's Stoker saying, like, like that is in, in Stoker's mouth. So he's wrong, right? Stoker's the bad, he's the devil. So him saying that anti-Semitic thing is like, you know, you, you can take that in some ways as Barth being like, this is a stupid point of view that we're going to dismiss immediately. Right. But you also have to be intelligent enough to figure out the parallels as opposed to like, oh, this guy's got some good points. <laughs> right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. But also, I mean, that's something that, you know, you still hear that. That's still something. I mean, just like a year ago, Kanye West was like, why didn't the slavery was a choice? And she's like, what are you talking about? Right. <laughs> like, this is still something that people who are who are given voices in culture express. And I think Kanye is a smart dude. I think he's incredibly talented. I think he's like, there's a reason he has a voice and why we put him on TV. That doesn't mean that he should no, be able to say whatever he wants to say. It's, though, an, yes. it's incredibly stupid opinion. Um, there's also, uh, at the end, there's like a false prophet or somebody's like, no, I'm actually the grand tutor who's Harold Bray. Yeah. Right? That's like, that's like not even at the end. That's like page 200. But like he, at the very end, like the last page, he becomes like a giant green dick and like flies off into the sky. <laughs> like Harold Bray like flies down. And he's like, Hey yeah, guys, I'm here know. now. And I, then he flies away at the end. Yeah. That stuff doesn't make sense to me. I, I, I'm, I'm lost on a lot of that, but yeah, Harold Bray, uh, yeah, is, is interesting. Cause he's, he's the person who's also claiming to be a grand tutor who um like we're as the reader led to believe that he might be the grand tutor over and over again it's like is he no is he no is he no you know the, this yeah. like push and pull of it um what else do we have here we have uh da, 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 da. the nicolaian student unionists are um communists sure. right student unionists are are the you know the American communists, the the people who exist in the in the West campus, uh, who are like essentially student radicals and things like that, what would end up becoming the new left and and uh, 
uh, Weather Underground and the Symbionese Liberation Army, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but they say, quote, um, enemies of private education, classmates of the classless college, founderless student unionists, right? So he's, he's um, that's Stoker again. He's saying this sarcastically. He knows the seat of power and among the working class, there's not much difference. Yep. Oh, there's also this other this other uh, quote in here that I, I don't even I just wrote this down. I don't even remember who says it, but I think it's like in some ways uh, relevant to all of politics in the entire world. It says, never mind the question. The answer is power. Yeah. What I did appreciate about this book, and I think it was kind of just me like looking for a life raft, is that like I would be reading and reading and reading and be like, I don't. And then like there's like a quote from like. Oh, yeah, like, I like that. Like, that's good. Like, there's... Oh, there's one that's in my head and has been bouncing around in my head ever since, which is, uh, I didn't even write it down. That's how much in my head it is. It's mired and bound, he groaned aloud. Uh, there is nothing more loathsome than the self-loathing of a self one loathes. There is nothing more loathsome than the self-loathing of a self one loathes. Right? Who hasn't felt that in their day? <laughs> yeah, man. Come on, it's me you used to gripe about your boss to every time the two of us would split a jug of Mountain Dew. Is that in there? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, put in the book somewhere. Is that from the play? Are they, just, are they talking about Mountain Dew in Oedipus Rex? No, no, no. I mean, in the the, the Taliped play, the, the play that's like the cipher of Oedipus. I don't know. It's because, 45% in, so maybe. Well, that, that actually probably would make sense. Well, that, that rhymed. So I said, like, which is another, again, this is like, there are so many, like, technical accomplishments within this book. Like, that entire fucking play is written in heroic couplets, yeah. which is like, I don't know how anybody writes like well, that. Well, it's like, the, it's the kind of thing where we talked about with Curtis White and stuff. It's like, oh, Requiem's like six different, like, incredibly yeah, yeah. difficult yeah. things to write, all, like, effortlessly weaved together. Yeah. And it's like, how does one person write that? It's like, it's like John Barth. You have the ability to write a fascinating thing why did you choose to write this? <laughs> well, this is something that I've said about Norman Mailer over and over again, which is like, Norman Mailer is like, arguably, I mean, I can make an argument for him being the most talented American novelist. But like, the reason why he's not the best American novelist is because like, his talent just fucking gets away from him. And then it like goes wild and does shit that like, isn't remotely enjoyable, makes sense, uh, uh, work with, it's like he's trying, he's trying to do too much, you know? Yep. There's one quote I want to maybe end on that we can do our other things. And this is very early. But there are always plenty of dragons, aren't there, Max? If a man knows he's a hero, can he always find himself a dragon? Which is just like, whoa, like that's yeah. just like, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm a hero. I need to go conquer some shit. I'm going to go find some shit to conquer. And like that's either like empowering or like real scary. Right, because it's a way that people make excuses to do stuff. Yeah. Right. It's a, it's a way that like, you know, uh Ask for forgiveness, not permission, or, you know, the world of, of business, right? Yep. Which is just, like, exploitative at its at its very nature. Yeah. Um, do you want to, uh, did you think about this as a movie at all? No. And I also, for our Patreon thing where we rank our favorite characters, I don't know how to, it's just Giles and he's going to be a fucking F. He's like, an F! I, he might be, I don't, we'll talk about it on the Patreon, but I, like. I would put Max as, a, as high up there. Well, there's two movies that came out last year in 2021 that are both ostensibly thematically linked to this one of which we might cover on our patreon episode i don't know we're still up in the air about that but lamb and wolf yeah. are both about kind of animal human hybrids either directly or indirectly or whatever right and so you can do it uh <laughs> i don't know man like i i do think that there is like i i think that there is value in a sense to this being 750 pages or whatever but i also think that if it was like 150 pages i might love it yeah i get that I get that. So I had an idea. Well, 
before we started recording this episode, I was like, should we read Meg's email first? Because Egg, once again, read along with us. And I thought we would have less to say, but this is a good episode. I think it's one of our better episodes, to be perfectly honest, because it's book is dense AF. <laughs> but I'm wondering, so normally next on the schedule, what we've done every episode when we do call him is we call Matt Erdely, Judge Matt Erdely, his honorable Judge Matt Erdely for Judge a Book by its cover. But I almost feel like the email should come before that to continue the conversation Let's do it. I also will say that um, Meg just texted me to tell me that she is currently watching Shiva Baby because you mentioned it on the last podcast. Shout out. I mentioned it? Yeah. Cool. Shiva Baby's great. Yeah. Uh, probably my third favorite movie of the year. Behind? Um, oh, Mass and, Mass and Card, Card Counter. Counter. Yeah. Favorite is a very strange way to describe those movies, but, you know, it's all weird. I, I understand. Matrix, Titan, Dune, Shiva Baby, I think. Your favorite movie, The Matrix. Okay. We have an email address, lottery at cageclub.me. Again, Egg wrote in. If you want to write in, if you want to write in about this book or any book, whatever. Yeah, write, lottery. In, write in to tell us, um, you know, oh, oh uh, send send nudes to Joey, too. Flunk off. I finished the book yesterday, says Egg. I should have written my email right away because it feels like my brain just erased the book from my head again. We finished a week ago. It's equally erased. From I, was, I was actually a little bit surprised by how how much recall I had over it. But we didn't. There's a lot like Ira, for example. I couldn't recall exactly what his like. There's lots of stuff that we did not cover just because it's a 750 page sure. book and, and it's hard to. Well, I think the same way we did ducks. It's like you pick out the themes and the through lines and yeah. the things that ultimately wind up mattering. Sure. And the rest kind of falls away. But we could have done another three hours on ducks. The same way we could do another three hours on this. But at some point. Yeah. I think part of the reason for that is that there is nothing very special about it to me. Even though you said early on that she was loving it, Yeah, right? she, she said it was made for her. I, quote-unquote, got what Barth was doing with critiquing academia through the lens of a, quote, holy text. However, at times, it felt like some of it was just padding in order to get us to the right number of sections and chapters, i.e. an Old and New Testament, three sections of seven chapters each, 21 in total, which are all significant numbers. Sure. Also, yeah, yeah. this is all ostensibly spoken aloud this is all played on reels right there's like audio whatever not that it matters or anything but just like that's the structure of the book yeah there are actually two things that i want to talk about when we're finished with this that we didn't that we did not talk about at all let's talk let's talk about it now we can come back to this number one is the the structure of the book in which in in the intro you have john barth himself talking about discovering the the book which is a very now chuck polinuk thing to do yeah Right. And and um uh also is something that I think that's also how Lolita starts. So Lolita is a uh Nabokov saying, he, I found this, I don't approve of it, but here's what I found. No, he's saying I approve of it. The beginning of the beginning of Lolita is so fucking funny because that first in, that introduction is is anticipating criticism of it because he's like, Yeah, I know this is some pervert shit, and I know that a lot of you are gonna t- say the guy that wrote this is sick. Here's what I have to say to those people. Um you are uh really fucking stupid <laughs> you are really stupid and only a moron would think that and and like it's like I, I i love that intro he doesn't say it like exactly in those ways um but so like that establishes the uh the meta aspect of the right. text right you're 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 it's introducing artifice as like the the major um a major theme right this idea that it's like this is true. Like we, when we read books, we think of them as being true in our heads. But beforehand, it's introducing this idea of like, 
well, this is not necessarily true. This is something that I found. Right. Um, so it's like a narrative already, and it's a narrative that I have. So he's like, he's pushing himself away from it, like Joseph Conrad, again, in, in Heart of Darkness, does that as well. I think Lawrence Stern does it in Tristram Shandy. Like, this is something that exists in literature beforehand, but, like, it's not really ever John Barth. It's the author saying that this right. is like, yeah. I didn't write this. This is something that came to me. And I think that because it's like... um you know, holy texts are often delivered unto people, right? They don't write them or they don't, they find them. Moses they, found that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so like, I think it's, it's relevant in, in, in that context and also relevant as being like a significant progenitor to metatextual postmodernism in the late 20th century. Okay. That's what I have to say about that. Um, let's continue with Meg's email. And then we'll what else do you want to say in terms of the polemic? Like he's not my favorite author anymore, but at a certain point, and I think like every, yeah, you, when dude. you were a nineteen-year-old, yeah, I, yeah, I think I think probably like like fifteen to nineteen or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm like, this is he's he speaks the truth. He's still a good writer. People I, shit on him, but he's like that dude. Ha- he, he's writing pop songs. He's not writing fucking right. symphonies. But you know? I think that there is something valuable that even though I did not like this book almost in any way, I think the things that this inspired are the things that I love. Like, you said that this is maybe Harmony Corinne's favorite book. Uh, yeah. Or well, one of, well, because, I mean, he, Julian Donkey it's Boy. It's on a list of his favorite books, sure. So, like, it's the same way in reverse, where it's like, okay, you find your favorite band, and what's their band, what's their favorite bands, so you keep going backwards. Like, at some point, you're going to get to the thing where, like, it's impermeable, maybe, you're like, not, but it led to the thing, right? And yeah. so, I don't like this, but if it inspired Harmony Corinne and probably Chuck Palahniuk and whoever else to, like, do the things that they made that I love... I mean, definitely Don DeLillo and definitely um, David Foster Wallace and people like that. Yeah. Like Wallace has a has a essay called or a short story called uh, "Westward: The Course of the Empire Makes Its Way," that is essentially a patricidal story about John Barth. Like he's trying to dismantle the things that John Barth is talking about, uh, like his whole John Barth's whole movement, because postmodernism is. Essentially, and I said this to I said this to Megan a text message, and I and I uh, haven't said it here, but it's how I feel about the book. I think it's in a very um, intellectually stimulating book that leaves me emotionally cold, which is it's hard to connect to, but it's, it's impressive. Yeah, but it is that's sort of the story of postmodernism yeah. because postmodernism never. Uh, and again, this is sort of, I'm paraphrasing Wallace here, postmodernism like uses irony to like never tell you how it really feels about things. Like there's always a wink. It's There's always this glancing reference that says like, I'm not saying what I think about it. I'm criticizing something that someone else said about it, right? So like when Wallace writes Course of the Empire, uh, West where the Course of the Empire makes its way, he is um, attempting to kill that kind of postmodernism and introduce a new postmodernism with something like Infinite Jest, which embraces ideas of metatextual analysis and artifice, um, but also attempts to get at uh, what he thinks of as like real problems of sincerity in in the world and the ways in which that like a lot of the culture that came after Barth has made us colder people and moved us away from the things that allow us to be human and have been like alienating and isolating have made books less you know what roger ebert calls movies empathy machines but like books do do that too right uh, but like barth and people like barth have made books less empathetic and more analytical what the work that wallace is doing in infinite jest 
and I can hear people listening to this cringing because there's like a whole discourse around Wallace that is uh, sort of unpleasant. And we'll it, get to it at some point on this podcast. Yeah, we're worth going into, but also the, the sort of thing that on the internet gets distorted and mangled by people that haven't read it, et cetera, et cetera. And he has his own baggage as a human being that exists outside of his writing. But part of what Wallace is trying to do with his writing is bridge the gap between that that intellectual analysis of um, the human condition and the emotional response to the human condition, which is like, to that point, don't really have a meeting ground. Um, so I think he's like the next step in evolution from Barth. And we see that some some in Adam Levin too, who we'll get to later this this uh season module Module, whatever sorry meg sorry for interrupting and going on a tear there she's interrupting our (laughs) episode with her email so that we asked for thank you egg (laughs) the gender and race stuff felt pretty gross to me bobby and i talked a little bit about that i forget that you're bobby to everybody but us like it's still weird but whatever bobby and i talked a little bit about that so i'm sure it's already been discussed by you guys yes i will say there are a couple things i ended up liking number one she got four things I did like the second half of the novel more than the first. George got more bearable as he actually learned things and didn't do didn't just do whatever he wanted because he was the grand tutor. Yeah, good point. I also think that the second half is probably more enjoyable because you understand that the book teaches you how to read it. In a yeah, way. you're not getting fucking bombarded by acronyms and shit. You still are, but it's just like... You're familiar with those acronyms, so you can glaze over them. Number two, I found the play and prayers to be pretty clever. Yes, agreed. Yeah. We talked about that briefly. Number three, the couple of times that people say, by George, reminded me of the meme where God is like, oh, my me. I don't know that meme, but, but okay. Number four, the scene that feels like a, quote, learning by teaching moment where George is listening to his followers talk and then uses their interpretation in order to move forward on his journey. Yeah, that feels like a, like a religious thing that we never, like, you never think about Jesus doing that. But obviously Jesus was learning from the apostles as much as the apostles were learning from oh, Jesus. I'm sure you learn as much from your students as you taught them. <laughs> you know? It's uh, uh, not remotely true. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not including this in the above list because I find it simultaneously quote-unquote cute and eye-rolly. The final postscript and footnote where seemingly the post-tapes aren't written by the initial authors, and so they could or should be disregarded. Again. Yeah, this is, again, yeah, this is like a, a hallmark of postmodernism, this thing where it's like, all that stuff that you just read, I don't know. Like, here's the things that I think are not true about it. And you're just like, what the fuck was that? What? what?" Right. One of the things I found interesting was it felt like Barth was aware of the shift from humanities heavy to STEM heavy education. When in the beginning of the novel, Giles Stoker is telling, quote, JB about the classical novels being, quote, fed into the computer because the computer could read them faster. I was reminded of the digital humanities program at Northeastern. This is getting way in the weeds for me, but let's see here. I never took any of those classes, but as I understand it, they're pretty much uploading text and then writing programs to track the metadata within the text in order to track and display, quote, data points in the novel. Yeah, again, this is, I mean, keep in mind, he's writing this in 1966. Right. So, like, anything, like, he's he's might be seeing trends and predicting them and, you know, whiffing on some and landing on others. I'm sure there's a million things he predicted that we're, that we, we that, that, like, never came to fruition. So they don't, like, we can dismiss them out of hand because they don't, they just seem like weird things in the book. And then the things that he hits on, we're like, holy shit, can <laughs> you believe this genius? Um, Computers but, really are the future. But, well, I mean, that doesn't seem like that far off, right? No. He's, he's imagining weapons. 
Leskak as this enormous computer. The computer is the nuclear bomb that changed culture for yeah. all of an entirety and also coincidentally rotted all of our brains. So like there's uh, that stuff is prescient. Yep. Um, so I think I think what Meg's saying is is correct here. Um, but it's also like, you know, it's it's a good example of the ways in which we um, do the work for novels. Like he said a thing you know, he he's not accurately predicting it. He said a thing that we can use as a symbol to uh, wallpaper over our current culture. So then we, we, we can look at our culture through John Barth's lens. Um, and it seems like he accurately predicted it, but really he was just like, you know, reading tea leaves. Um, and then we and then we're looking back on it and say, like, the writing was on the wall always, um, which is that doesn't make it not impressive, but it's just it's it's also like. I don't know. I'm, in, I'm, I'm, I'm as in the woods as you are right now. She ends the email by saying, the last thing I want to say is a question. Was Classmate X supposed to remind us of Malcolm X? If I don't even remember Classmate X, to be honest. If so, I think it adds the offensiveness of the blackness in the novel since Classmate X isn't Frumentian or whatever it is. I, I think that, like, obviously there is a, a hint at that there. Let me, let me hold, hold on one second. Let me, let me try to find something. So Malcolm X died in 1965. I, w- I was unsure if it was 65 or, or, or after this book was published. Uh, I thought maybe it was a little bit later than This that. book probably took him a long time to write, though, right? Like, maybe... Who knows? I, yeah, I, I, some people write really, really quickly. But it's got to be partially a Malcolm X thing. Um, but also, like, Classmate X is, is a... Uh, he's not a black militant. Like, M- Malcolm X is a Marxist, of course, but, like, he's not... Classmate X doesn't seem to have that uh, identity politics aspect of Malcolm X, which I think is what Meg's saying is is frustrating and and offensive. But like, if you remove the blackness from Malcolm X, I don't see how you could be parodying Malcolm X because like that that is the only. I, I don't I don't see what there is to parody about him if you if you if you remove the the his his place within the the black struggle in the sixties. Like, what are you making fun of his his I mean, Classmate X is also not Muslim, right? If you think of Malcolm X, you think of him in, th- in three terms, right? You think of him as uh, black, you think of him as Muslim, and you think of him as a Marxist, as far as, like, you know, this broad painting version of him that, like, doesn't go into him as a human being at all, but just as, like, these identity signifiers. And I think that, um, I hope I'm not being, I, I'm not, I, I don't know that much about Malcolm X, but I think that I'm, I'm on the mark here. If you remove two of those three things... And just leave him as black. It, it, no, and just leave, leave him as, as a Marxist. Marxist. It's like it could be a it could be a parody of any any number of people. There, are, you know, most almost all of the black militants from the time, because the Black Panthers are a Marxist organization. Um, Nation of Islam is not necessarily a Marxist organization because they they are obviously a religious organization, which sort of moves away from Marxist analysis of stuff. Again, I don't want to talk too much about Nation of Islam because I just don't know that much about it. Um, also, he wasn't the only one who took who got rid of his last name with an X. Like, no, so like it, it might, it I mean, that, is a, that particular... is a slavery thing. I mean, yes. Louis Farrakhan did that too. He's Louis X. There are lots of, lots of people took X as a last name because they didn't want to embrace the, the white last names that had been thrust upon them. So, you know, classmate X is, is that, but it also like, honestly, I was not thinking, <laughs> this is so stupid. I was not thinking of Malcolm X when I read that. I was thinking of Racer X from Speed Racer, which is someone who, like, I think that's the that's the 60s as well, Yeah, Speed Racer. And I was thinking of him as, because Speed Racer is this, uh, Racer X is this identity list. I mean, we know that he's 
Rex Racer. Spoilers. We know that he's Speed Racer's brother. We know that he's Rex Racer. Real spoilers. But like he is a uh, revolutionary. He's ruining the the uh, the corporate machine that surrounds. <laughs> this is so stupid. There's no way that he's a Racer X parody. <laughs> Meg is probably 100% right that it is a Malcolm X thing. <laughs> well, I was like, how could I one-up this? And there's Jason Voorhees shedding his slave name and Jason X. So, I mean, like that's even... He's predicting the 10th Friday the 13th movie 40 or 30 years in advance. So anyway, I was reading that as Racer X from Speed Racer. And I'd never even like, you know, Speed Racer is a pop culture phenomenon. I actually don't know if it was around in 1966. I know that that show is from the 60s. 67 to 68. Yeah, so fuck it. I'm, I'm completely wrong. I like that your brain's like, all right, what can I do? Racer X. Forget, I'm not even going to think about the most famous X. Yeah, I don't know. But I think I think probably part of that is because he didn't share, like the X is the only identity that he's, sh- he's really sharing with Malcolm X. Right. Because uh, uh, Classmate X is a, um, well, he's a student unionist, right? It also could just be, it's just algebra, right? It's just like a variable. Like it's just like, it's an emblem of something else, yeah. right? So. Yeah, so I'm not one, I, I don't, you know. I don't know the answer to that. I, Flunk off, Meg. I, I, I will say that I didn't. I didn't read that as a Malcolm X parody. Um, I agree that if that is a Malcolm X parody, it's probably offensive. I'd have to reread it. But you know, Barth doesn't. The book is not good with race stuff, so it wouldn't surprise me if he fucked that up. Too. I think the whole thing that we're discussing here is that if there's a thing that is actually a racial comparison or parody or whatever, it's probably problematic. Yeah. In this book. What was the other thing? That was the end of our email. Thank you, Egg. If you want to email in lottery at cageclub.me, but you said there was a second thing you wanted oh, to Oh, I was up. trying to think of it in terms of, uh, you know, what, we, what we're doing with this module, which is the campus novel. Yeah. Right? So this is like not like the other campus novels. This is the most abstract version of it yet. Which is it's not like it doesn't take place on an actual campus. It doesn't take place with actual school, but it is using the school as a metaphor, which is something that the other books are also doing, right? The schools. Sure. In, in all of the books that we've read so far. Well, the school's just, always an ecosystem, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a self-contained closed community, right? And so this is using the language of that self-contained closed community of largely privilege, right? Which is uh, especially in 1966, not everyone was going to college. Um, the, the most privileged people in the world are going to college in America, um, in in some ways, you know, whatever. That 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 is its own problematic statement. Well, I think that there's something also very smart about using language that everybody just understands to f- give the proper context to like this very lofty story, right? Yeah. Because like the story is either straightforward or totally bad shit, but framing it within there's students and there's professors and there's a campus or whatever, right? It's just like, yeah. even if I don't understand what's going on, I can at least peg things within a very understandable, even if you don't go to college, you went to high school, you went to middle school, you went to elementary, you, you know the overall structure. So like, it's smart in that way. And then he just, you can get bogged down in the weeds otherwise, but you still have the framing. Yeah. And also it fits in, but it's like, you know, to compare this to like prep, which is like, <laughs> yeah, they're both schools, but like, they're they're not, not, yeah, these books are not on the same planet. Like I will say you may, you obviously enjoyed prep more than you enjoyed this book. Yeah, but it's a worse book. It's a much worse book. It's not, it's not even on the same planet. Right. Yeah, it's, and and another thing that, you know, something that's interesting to me is that the grand tutor is God or Jesus or whatever you want to put it. A tutor is not a particularly powerful position within a school. It is almost a powerless position. Even though we were both former tutors and it, both very powerful people. I'm, I, I had no power. I was making 16 bucks an hour. Um, More than me. I had a master's degree. That, that's how that works, right? You get a master's degree and you get paid a little bit more. But... Uh, like rabbi means teacher. Yep. 
right? So like I, I think I think it's reflecting this idea that like religious figures, these people that we put on pedestals, are at their absolute best when they're teaching us, sure. right? That when they're when they're sharing knowledge and showing us how to move through the world in a way that. To improve yourself, to learn. Yeah, yeah, right? allows us to improve. Yeah. So I think that that's an interesting way to put it. And to, to like center this book in inside this module, it's doing the opposite of what all of the other books are doing, which is that it's like making a metaphor of the school, whereas like, um, or it's literalizing the metaphor where the school becomes the the uh, the world, whereas in other in all the other books this semester it's doing the opposite thing, where the world becomes the school in in miniature. Yeah, yeah, that's what I, that's what I want to say about that. So we just tried to call Matt Honorable Judge Matt Early. He did not answer. So next time we'll get him on the pod. He would love Endzone. Has he read Endzone? I don't think so. He read he you know he's been he reading read Underworld, Underworld. For, for five years. <laughs> You know, that's a book that takes five years to read, though. It's like 900 pages or something like that. My boss is like, have you ever read a thousand page book? I'm like, or no, I think it's like a 700 page book. I'm like, you have for like three this year. <laughs> I have a book podcast that's wildly successful. Get Shell's on here. He can bring us to 30K. The quest to 30K. Colin. <laughs> right now. Hey, uh, have you read Guile's Goat Boy? There's actually, there's a chance... I think of all the books we've covered, there's a better chance he's read this than most of the other young things. young man in the 60s, right? Yeah. He, he would have been, he was eight when this came out. Oh, never mind. Probably not then. We have a Twitter at LotteryPod, Patreon.com slash LotteryPod. I think our Audible promo went away because nobody used it, which is fine because Amazon does not deserve more of your money. Yeah, they deserve there's less also of your money. not an Audible version of this. There's no audiobook of this. I was like, maybe I will be saved by listening to this and understanding it. Does not exist. You know what Stephen King does with his, or used to do with his kids? He would make his kids read books and put them on tape, and then he would listen to the audiobook of his children reading as he drove around. That's how he got a lot of his reading done. Listening to his children's audiobooks. Yeah, but that's like a great way to get but kids to Joe read. But then Joe King became too. a writer, right? So like Owen Hill became a writer, too. Yeah. Oh, Owen Hill did uh, Nosferatu, right? Did he write that? I want to, Joe, Joe Hill and Owen King. We got them confused. Joe Hill, Owen King. Joe Hill is the one that wrote Nosferatu. Okay. Who would you cast? You said, well, you talked briefly about this before as a movie. Who would you cast as Guile's Goat Boy? Jacob Tremblay from Room? Zachary Quinto. He's way too old, isn't he? <laughs> yeah. I have no idea. Could you? I have no idea. Okay, then a better thing is. Oh, would... no. You know, I actually know exactly who I would cast. Hold on. This is actually fucking perfect. Um, is, uh, I, I don't remember his name. He's in, um... <laughs> I got the perfect casting. Don't know what his name is. No, he's in, uh, uh, that movie that you like, Midsummer. Which one? He's the one, he's the weird-looking guy. The idiot? He's also in Detroit. He's the racist cop in Detroit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jack somebody. And he just got cast as Adam Warlock. Jack Rayner. No, Will Poulter. Will Poulter. That's it. Yeah, wouldn't he be perfect? Yeah, I can see that. He's a perfect gal's goat boy. I mean, he's got the goat legs. Does he? <laughs> He's also in We're the Millers, which was a movie that I bought on Blu-ray. I'm like, I don't need to own this movie yeah, he, on Blu-ray. Yeah, he kisses uh, 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 Jen Aniston and, and the and the other one too, the uh, Emma Roberts. It's an attractive cast, and with Ted I watched Lasso like the dad, I watched like five minutes of that movie. That's the only like where they're teaching him how to kiss. That's the only part of that movie that I saw. There is a very funny scene in the credits of that movie where they're driving and like they're supposed to. There's a song that comes on the radio or whatever, and they put somebody pull the joke and they put the friends theme and Jen loses it. Keep reading. 
I have three. I have three New Year's resolutions this year. Genuine, honest re- resolutions. Number one, get and keep improving my health, lose more weight, get in better shape. Number one. Yeah. Number two, read more pages than I read last year. Even sure. though last year was a career high in pages. Yeah. Thirteen thousand something. And then number three is just be more present more often, which is a very nebulous thing. I'm like, yeah, check, I did that. Like, there's no way to actually prove that, but just sure, be more aware. I, I got my mile thing. Yep. I have to do more uh, writing stuff. For my, I have to get a job that pays me money. You got a new job. Don't do don't do other people's jokes from other people's podcasts. That doesn't make any sense. Get a job. And then, you know, something that I used to do that I uh, was helpful to me mentally is I used to, um, this is, I was told to do this by a mental health professional, was to keep a gratitude journal, which is on a day-to-day basis, find something that you're grateful for every day. And it can be as, you know, stupid as um, I had an apple that tasted really good or something like that, but it gives you something to reflect on every day to show you that things are not quite so bad. Um and that's, I think, you know, I'm going to try to move back toward doing things like that. Yeah. Well, I know that last year, I think the first week of last year, I got my first vaccine. Yeah. And I remember in the parking lot with the Honorable Judge Matt Early and our friend Dylan and just being like, this is going to be a good year. It was not a good year. And me. I was there, too. Oh, you were there, too. Yeah. And I was like, guys, I have news. Um, oh, right. <laughs> I've just been broken up with. Even though we know. No, you told Dylan because we, oh, yeah, we knew it before. Yeah. Told Dylan. No, that was the second vaccine shot, I think. That was the, um, I don't know. We were in the parking lot of Popeyes. Yeah, because the first time we went to Wendy's and Matt dropped his drink and a stranger bought him a new drink. Oh, that's that's kind. And he's just like, oh, wow. But I remember thinking, like, this is a really good start to the year. Like, after last year, I basically saw no people in person. Like, the first year, first week of the year, I yeah. got very lucky, got an early vaccine appointment, and I'm with my friends. And here, January 1st, kicking off, 8.15 a.m., 8.20 a.m., sorry, 8.20 a.m. now. <laughs> And here we are, setting the pace of the year, entering the year with hope. Yeah, it was a tough, tough year last year. But, you know, um, move forward. Uh, it's all just movement, right? Keep moving. Keep moving, um, keep reading. And uh, today's crime is elder abuse. As soon as you're born, you start dying. So you might as well have a good time. Oh, no. Sheep go to heaven. Goats go to hell.